Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. On this episode of Reaganism, the Ronald Reagan Institute hosted two defense experts to discuss Albert J. Colby's new book, The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict. Albert J. Colby was joined by Congressman Mike Gallagher, who represents Wisconsin's 8th District in the United States House of Representatives. Colby and Congressman Gallagher discussed the pressing issues addressed in his book, such as the evolving global threat environment, the challenge of a rising China, and recommendations for strengthening American national security through deterrence by denial. If you enjoyed the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. My name is Roger Zakheim. I'm the director of the Ronald Reagan Institute, the Washington, D.C. home of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. This morning, we are excited to host two experts on defense policy and strategy, Mr. Elbridge Colby and Congressman Mike Gallagher. They will be discussing Bridges' new book, The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict. Here we go. You see it. You got the Yale University Press, and um, just go onto Amazon to purchase it right now. It's a number one new release on international diplomacy. Bridge previously served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy and Force Development at the Pentagon, where he led the development of the 2018 National Defense Strategy, a document that clearly laid out the main challenge facing the United States sustained strategic competition, particularly with China. He is now the co-founder and principal of the Marathon Initiative, which is focused on developing strategies to prepare the United States to meet that challenge. And moderating this conversation is Congressman Mike Gallagher, who represents Wisconsin's 8th District in the U.S. House of Representatives and serves as a member, a senior member now, of the House Armed Services Committee. Prior to taking office, Mike was captain of the U.S. Marine Corps and a lead staffer on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He also, I don't think we could bring together a better pair of individuals to discuss how America deals with the realities of a phrase we hear often in the news, a rising China. And certainly, Bridges' recent book makes a very substantive contribution to the discussion around China and America's effort. So as a member of the Reagan Institute's Task Force on National Security and Manufacturing Competitiveness, he is a leading voice on national defense and the challenges posed by the Chinese Communist Party to deter and defend. While most of what we hear relates to how or what could come from China, Bridge aptly and clearly considers China as a present threat to the United States, our allies, and certainly the stability and security of Asia. In an interview with The New Yorker, Bridge was quoted saying that, quote, he wrote this book largely to make brass tacks case to ordinary Americans about why they should care enough to defend Taiwan and other exposed Asian partners. I think he does that quite well, and he's willing to paint a picture of what could ensue if our next defense strategy fails to address great power competitors correctly. It is through recognizing the potential darkness of war that this book shows uh, a seed of hope. One of my favorite quotes from this book is, quote, peace then does not come from some unfocused readiness to be unpeaceful, but only from a willingness to imagine and consider what a war would actually be like. With that, 
Congressman, Mike, I turn it over to you to open this discussion in a wonderful book that we can hope will guide another successful defense strategy. Over to you. And thank you to the Ronald Reagan Institute. It's great to be here in person. I know uh, we have, you have an incredible facility here. I know you're probably planning on using this facility much more, but the last year and a half have changed those plans due to COVID. But I think we're all eagerly awaiting the day when we can gather uh, in mass here and, and celebrate and uh, use this amazing institution to its full capacity. But thank you for hosting us. This is really an incredible, incredible organization. Uh, Bridge, uh, good to see you. Congratulations on this remarkable accomplishment, the publication of a book, uh, The Strategy of Denial. Uh, there are many things I admire about you, Bridge. Uh, first of all, you have the best hair in U.S. national security. Low and this, this is not, well, it's like, it's like being the fastest member of Congress. It's a very dubious distinction, Brish. Yeah, like being the best player on the Chicago Bears. Um, but this, is also, this has been a, a longstanding thing. I, in doing research in preparation for this interview, I came across a very important article that was written in 2006 about a young 26-year-old, Bridge Colby, and a house that you shared with Rayhan Salam <laughs> and Ross Douthat. And I just want to quote this really quickly, because there's a point at which uh, Ross is worried about being a la labeled a neocon. He says, I'm not even a neocon. Bridge would kill me if he heard that. <laughs> and then it describes you as following. Mr. Colby was too busy talking to an unnamed young female. You're probably single at the time. His hair was the color of corn silk, and he wore a beige corduroy jacket with suede elbows. <laughs> Using a strong jaw and an authoritative voice, he dodged questions about what exactly he did in Washington. I work in government, foreign affairs. A few guests whispered that he worked for John Negroponte, the director of national intelligence. What makes a house party, Mr. Colby noted, a well-furbished house, the neat neighborhood, the good backyard. Debauchery, he explained, was unlikely. Quote, politics and government are inherently less flashy. Well, today, Bridge, I hope we can prove the 2006 version of yourself wrong because okay. we're going to have a very flashy conversation about what is a dry topic often, U.S. defense policy. But sincerely, uh, I very much enjoyed, enjoyed the book. Uh, it's an essential read for anyone who's trying to think about the unique strategic environment we're in and what America's strategy should be. Uh, to kick things off, can you, can you just speak a bit more about what do you mean at the most basic level by denial and how does that differ from previous american strategies such as deterrence by punishment great well first off thank you congressman mike for for uh, being here with me it's an honor and and i'm, I'm uh, you know uh, delighted to, to to speak about the book and the related issues with you and i you know, the one of the very leading uh, national voices on these issues and and, and certainly uh, in the congress and, and to roger and the reagan institute it's really a pleasure and honor to be here as well I, denial to me is, is a two-level uh, reference. The first is denial as the goal of our geopolitics, of our overall strategy, which is essentially not to liberalize the whole world, not to transform the whole world, not to dominate the whole world, but to deny another state dominance over the, one of the world's key regions. And in a sense, this is one strain of our traditional strategy. If you go back to George Kennan's, I think, National Defense University speech, you see that. Now, how do you do that? Well, military power is essential, as I think we may, we may talk about, um, but that critical to, to realizing the military aspect of that is another level of denial. And that's denial of the uh, opponent's ability to subordinate countries within our coalition, especially allies or, or such. And that differs, as you've very, very ably written and, and, and very lucidly yesterday in the Washington Post, that is a different standard than, say, uh, we're going to punish you. You know, denial is basically saying, I will ensure that you are frustrated in your objective, China, versus 
I can't stop you vis-a-vis Taiwan or Philippines or Russia over the Baltics, but I can hurt you in other ways somehow. And the, the problem with strategies like that is they can work under certain circumstances, uh, you know, particularly when you're defending your very home core, core territory. But the problem that we face is that in order to serve that overall geopolitical objective, we need to fight alongside our allies and partners who are very distant from us and who, you know, you would know better than I, but the American people don't necessarily see a compelling rationale to sacrifice for. And so denial becomes more attractive in those kind of circumstances. So in, in laying that out in the book, you cite shelling on deterrence versus compellence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and his sort of example he used, I believe, was sort of, you know, I'm, I'm going to use one car to block you trying to go down a road. You cite um, Kahneman on, on prospect theory, but, so at, but at the basic possible, base, most basic level, would be fair to say that a, a denial strategy is more cost-effective or more realistic, for lack of a better term, because it's easier to maintain the current status quo as opposed to trying to upend the status quo, which is what, in this case, the CCP is trying to do. Right. Well, I think there's, there's a couple things. I mean, the basic distinction is it easier to get somebody to do something by forcing them to do it or by persuading them to do it. And fundamentally, we all know it's the former. I mean, the example that I used in, in, in the book, in a lot of ways, is an homage to Tom Schelling, who was a, a giant of a thinker but also a wonderful man. Uh, is it's easier to, 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 to use direct physical force. The example that I use as an, as an homage in particular to the arms and influence and strategy of, of conflict is if you've had, you have little kids, like if you have a little child and you want them to get to the, go to the bath, you're going to argue yourself blue in the face for an hour trying to convince them, or you can just take them. Mm-hmm. And the other, you know, the, the, the more high, highbrow version of that is, you know, Napoleon's line, if you want to take Vienna, take Vienna. Right. And so by the same token, deterrence is like, you know, persuading somebody not to do something. It's generally going to be more effective if if the other guy knows not only that he's probably going to get hurt, but that he's basically going to almost certainly going to fail. And the problem with 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 punishment strategies is that they take one of those pieces uh, away and they rely on on essentially on persuasion much, much more. So you had the rarest of opportunities to actually take this idea about a strategy of deterrence by denial and implement it at the highest levels of government uh, in the Pentagon. Uh, eventually, this manifested itself in the 2018 National Defense Strategy. But when, when did you first start to think that American defense strategy needed to undergo this shift? And, and what motivated that? Yeah. What was your sort of personal intellectual journey? Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, you mentioned that New Yorker article and, 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 and my, my old friend Ross, you know, his column in, in the New York Times, and they kind of give you a sense if, you're, if you really want to dive into my intellectual development, God help you. But, you know, it's, I mean, I think I've all, actually, from the, the, the immediate post 9-11 era, and in some sense even before, I've always sort of been focused on, uh, I would say, deterrence, when it was very uncool in the 2000s, if you recall. Uh, you know, it was, it was openly lambasted by leading statesmen of, of all stripes. Um, and I've been, uh, and I've also been, I think it's had a tendency to focus on, on the great powers, you know, to kind of look more at what, at what those states can really, really do. And that's progressively led me, I mean, I didn't, I, in some ways, actually, in my thinking about deterrence, I emphasized the cost imposition parts, because I started off thinking more about the nuclear side. You know where I have a somewhat, uh, a somewhat related but different view of things um, than might appear from here, um, but I think as I've seen, you know, the rise of China and how strong it is, and what our geopolitical objective is. What I'm trying to do is, it's not that I'm a deterrence by denial sort of fetishist or devotee per se. It's just that in these circumstances, I'm persuaded that it's what we need because, you know, we can't rely on strategies that basically involve imposing a huge amount of cost and risk 
as such on the American people. That may be how it gets there, mm-hmm. but as I think you know from the book, a big part of this, the logic of the strategy is if we start off with denial and we're pretty good at it, we're more likely to make cost by uh, deter, uh, punishment work if we get up the escalatory ladder. Yeah. Okay, so we've, I think the entire national security community over the last uh, 20 years, and we just celebrated the 20th anniversary of 9-11, though you were doing deterrence before it was cool, <laughs> everyone right. is sort of belatedly coming around to this right. recognition that the main thing is China. Uh, we've had a certain bipartisan hypothesis about China, that by integrating it into the global economy, they would become responsible actors. You know, there's a logic to that. It just happened to fail uh, and didn't work. Uh, the opposite sort of happened, and particularly under uh, General Secretary Xi Jinping's leadership. So now we're all trying to think about how we deal with China. You come into the Pentagon. You have an opportunity to formulate the strategy. So in clearest possible terms, vis-a-vis China, what are we trying to deny? I think we're trying to deny them hegemony over, over the Asia, which, and that's not because Asia uh, per se, but because it's the world's largest market area. So I think China rationally has a goal, actually, which uh, you know, is exacerbated by the ideological nature of the regime, but is rooted in deeper structural factors, to, to establish a kind of hegemonic position over a very large market area. This is kind of standard behavior of great powers, because ultimately... You know, military power is, is fundamental, but military power in the, in the sort of post-gunpowder world is an outgrowth of, of economic development, right? And that's, so that's what's kind of at the end of the day what people are, are looking at. And if you control, control in kind of soft terms, but in a meaningful way, 50% of global GDP, then you're going to dominate all the rules, the regulations. You're going to be able to direct economic flows and activity, trade flows around you in the way that we've just become so accustomed to that Wall Street and Silicon Valley – and, you know, the industrial Midwest, these are, these are going to be in our, in our hands. And, I mean, the example I give, and I know you're sensitive to this, uh, is, you know, a lot of us have concerns about what the social media companies are doing. But at least, you know, we can hope that our elected representatives like you will be able to fix this problem because they are American companies and they'll be accountable to the U.S. government if, if the U.S. government so decides it. But what if, those, if the big social media companies are actually accountable to Beijing? And now they, they'll only throw you off, you know, Alibaba or whatever if you say something about Xinjiang, but that's, that's just a taste. Mm-hmm. And you can see what they're doing in Australia that it's obviously going to move in that direction. So I think that's ultimately what we want to deny China. And by, you know, by, it's essentially a balance of power, which sounds like an old world kind of monarchical thing, but it's actually, I think, in our repu- small r Republican national interest as a working Americans, we all benefit from not having our economic prosperity security determined in Beijing. So you believe the CCP's goal is to establish regional hegemony, which by definition means they have to destroy or disrupt the, the hegemonic coalition that we've established painstakingly over the last few decades. Well, I think, they, I think that's the minimum goal. In fact, okay. I think a lot of people credibly argue that they may have higher goals like global dominance. I don't know. But at a minimum, I think they're definitely, you know, if they're going to get to global preeminence, they've got to get through regional hegemony. And I think, yes, that, that anti-hegemonic coalition, we have, a, we have part of it in our traditional alliance structure, but obviously it's, it's evolving. But yes, you're exactly right. China's got to break that apart or short-circuit it somehow to attain its goal. So you go into great detail in the book, and I found this very useful as a policymaker in the possible, with that goal in mind of regional hegemony and, and possibly that sort of the, you know, that could lead to a broader global strategy to undermine you know, the free world and American leadership thereof. You go into great detail about the range of possible strategies available to Beijing. Um, talk about uh, your concept of, the, of Beijing's best strategy, and maybe that's a, 
a way to introduce us to this, this concept of a, a fait accompli strategy vis-a-vis Taiwan? Well, this is an area, Mike, where, where my experience in the Pentagon really informed my thinking. I mean, just to kind of, I think, address your, your point about my time in the Pentagon, one of the things I really came away with from my time in the Pentagon was actually the value and importance of a strategy. But a strategy as a kind of framework for narrowing debate because, in a sense, you're having to make situations. You know, we live in a world where we know we can't outspend everybody else. We can't yeah. just smother it with resources. But people, there's just an infinite, infinite amount of information out there and potential choices. So actually, the worst thing people can do with a strategy is say it's the world is complex. Well, no duh, <laughs> right? right? The point is to a- accurately and productively simplify to narrow so that you know when you're debating about the number of F-35s, that's within a rational construct that actually makes sense and you can have a more productive argument. You kind of like make them more productive debates. So what's China's best strategy? I'm very persuaded, and this was an experience I had with the Pen- in the Pentagon, uh, was there wasn't actually a clear idea about how we should think about, about Beijing. And I go through the alternatives. Some people might say, well, we should go after China's like, quote unquote, likeliest strategy. And I critique why I think that, you know, gray zone a- activities, for instance, uh, or it's more destructive. You know, maybe it'll launch an apocalyptic nuclear first strike. But my view is actually what we need to be worried about is China's best strategy. And this is the same, I, I assume, you know, if you're the Green Bay Packers or if you're a you know, baseball team or whatever, you're thinking of basketball team, you're thinking about the best strategy that the other side can bring. Because if they do something dumb, you'll probably be able to work it out or deal with it. What, but if you're not prepared for the best strategy and they, and they figure that out, then you're in real trouble. So I think that their best strategy to deal with that anti-hegemonic coalition is what I call the focused and sequential strategy. Basically, China actually wants to avoid, if it can, precipitating a really large conflict with the United States and a bunch of other countries. Probably lose it at this stage, and at a minimum, it's going to be hugely costly and risky. Instead, they kind of are better off trying to do something where they can essentially put a knife in a couple of small countries and then make it clear, like a run on the market, that this whole thing is a hollow scam and nobody would be prudent to affiliate with the Americans. How do you do that? You pick off a couple of countries, paradoxically, that I think are linked to the United States. Mm -hmm. Because if the center of gravity of that anti-hegemonic coalition is our, what I call our differentiated credibility, then going after Vietnam actually can be counterproductive. It's like the best thing that ever happened in NATO was Russia going after Ukraine, because it's like, well, I guess the Russians are scared of NATO. Because they're not a formal ally. Because they're not a formal ally. So that's, and then, and that's how I get to the... So you, but just to to make the, to hammer the point is that by doing that, you're basically signaling, don't mess with U.S. allies. And that you're almost reinforcing. You're reinforcing it because you're like, I guess I'm, I guess you're scared of them. And so you actually can, you can backfire. Um, And then that gets me to the fait accompli because then you say, okay, well, you know, if I'm, if that's my thing and I want to, you know, and I'm conscious of the, of the superiority of direct force as a coercive mechanism. But I don't want to start a huge war. You got to kind of like have this Goldilocks thing. And I think the fait accompli is actually ideal for a coalition because it you use the direct force to, to, to subordinate the vulnerable state like Taiwan or, say, the Philippines yeah. in the future. But then you use more de- deterrence by, you know, the threat of, of, of escalation to kind of say to the Americans, like, don't bother, right? Because if, if they don't use the fait accompli, if they do like let's say they just launch a bunch of bombing campaigns and s- try to blockade or sanction Taiwan. The risk is that Taiwanese don't want to live under the PRC. Yeah. So they might be like the Brits in 1940. And frankly, we've discovered with the North Vietnamese, the North Koreans, the Cubans, it's hard to get countries to give up. So, so I think that's where I come out on the Fed complete. And frankly, it is a really good strategy. It's dangerous. Wouldn't there just be a simpler analysis that rather than looking at the U.S. alliance structure 
uh, and sort of thinking through, okay, what is the, the critical or the, the, the best target just to say, well, the CCP obviously has a historical commitment to Taiwan and has long said that reunification, I know you make this point in the yeah. book, but reunification of Taiwan with the mainland has been a long-standing goal of the CCP, and Xi Jinping in particular has talked openly about his desire to do that. And I just bring that up because I think there's a lot of people that when I say we need to be preparing for a Taiwan scenario, they're like, well, they're never going to do that. Um, Why not? No, I think it's, in a sense, it's a great point. It's kind of overdetermined. Like, one of the things I wanted to do with this book was kind of really focus on, on the structure and the deductive aspects. And so I think you could have a range of views about China yeah. and how China is likely to make decisions, you know, who's up, who's down, what its future is, and, it, and you can work with this book to adapt. So I didn't want to get too, like, in the weeds in a way. I made a virtue of my own ignorance about a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. But that's, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that, you, you, know, you, you know, you can, I agree with you. I think they're, they mean business, but some people don't. But both of, people, both of us can have a, a constructive debate. But, but the problem, the real problem is, excuse me, deductively, I actually think it does probably make sense for China to go after Taiwan if you posit that their goal is regional hegemony at a minimum. Yeah. Because it's like the, the natural way to proceed towards their goal. That's but, scary. But it's not a treaty ally in the sense that we think of a, a NATO treaty ally, right? So I think of it as like two-thirds of an ally. You know, yeah. I mean, this notion that like we'd only defend treaty allies is not held up by history. And I don't, I mean, what really matters is our differentiated credibility. A treaty is obviously... Can you the, explain that concept? Yeah. You go into a great deal in the book about yeah. differentiated credibility. We think of credibility. I mean, you cite Daryl Press and this, yeah. can he sort of posits... You know, past actions determine credibility versus current calculus. Where does where does differentiated credibility fit? I think I'm in the middle, debate? which is kind yeah. of a lame place to be, but I, I think it's right. You know, which is on the Certainly one hand politically, yeah, right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Well, on the one hand, you know, there there you know academics, for instance, who say credibility doesn't matter at all, and it's like, well, have you ever applied for a mortgage? You know, like you have to get a credit report, right? Like obviously, people look at credibility. It's it's critical to human engagement of any kind. But on the other hand, then there are people who I disagree with who say that, like, oh my gosh, if we you know, get out of the Middle East, like, no one's ever going to believe us. And I think, no, people are intelligent. They look at a fact pattern. One of the few things I, I productive, you know, stuck in my mind from law school, I'm like the worst, I'm not even a lawyer, but like, definitely not a, a good one, but is, you know, this kind of idea of a reasonable man, a reasonable person standard in the law. Like, people kind of know the difference. If you're Japan and you see the Americans back off on Taiwan, you're rationally going to take that as very significant. If the Americans don't follow through with something like with Venezuela, you can understand the difference. So I think that's the idea of the, the, the differentiated credibility. Let me, let me put it in a more, and, I, and I'm sort of doing a little bit of detour here, but quickly on complexity. Yeah. I, I once wrote a piece of parameters that went through sort of all the Obama administration strategic documents that, that all had something like, we live in a, a, a world of unprecedented complexity. And then I went back to all the strategic documents of like the late 40s and 50s. They said the exact same thing, right? So on some scientific level, the universe is getting more complex. Right, there's Entropy like a lot of atoms moving around. I yeah, guess, yeah, but it has always been thus, right? Yeah. And strategy, you make a good point that I think strategy is the art of simplifying a complex reality or developing a heuristic to yeah, deal with the complex exactly. reality and then forcing prioritization. Right. Um, okay, so we've established China is our, our pacing threat uh, China's goal is to, at a minimum, uh, disrupt or under, uh, establish regional hegemony for itself, thereby undermining uh, our hegemonic coalition, our anti-hegemonic coalition. Yeah. Um, and within that, the, most, the best strategy Beijing it, uh, will pursue is a fait accompli against Taiwan. So is it fair for us to think in your analysis of Taiwan as, you know, 
what Kenny would call the strong point for a geopolitical competition? What would be the best analogy? Yeah, well, the I mean, I, of the it's the weak day. point, so it's the strong point. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, to your point, and I think exactly what makes Taiwan difficult is that it's more of like a 70-30 call for us. You know, like it's not a cut and dry. We don't have to worry about, like, we don't really have to think that much about defending Oregon because if the Chinese attack Oregon, our resolve won't be in question, and we have enormous latent capacities, which we will activate. The issue is when you've got a vulnerability that's significant for your overall strategic goal, which is the case with Taiwan. Even if it's two-thirds of an alliance, yeah. it's clearly going to reverberate with the key other parts like Japan and, and the Philippines and Vietnam, et cetera, not to mention militarily from a direct, you know, as you've written about uh, really eloquently, the ability to project power into the Central Pacific out to the second island cloud, as Andy Rhodes calls it. I mean, I think that's, that's very significant. So, so Taiwan, is, Taiwan is, is really important, but it's not cut and dried, and it's not existential. But hence, the vital importance of the right military strategy for it. Yeah. One of the big problems with the cost imposition strategies and the lack of focus that you have been drawing attention to is we need a military strategy that allows us to fight Taiwan in a way that's consistent with what Americans can reasonably be expected to support. Yeah. Like, we can't, like, all say, well, we're going to defend Taiwan, and we're going to do it by launching a massive first nuclear strike on China. Or we're going to shut down the American economy to do the Taiwan thing. Okay, wait, that's an important point. Yeah. Is it the weak point because we, despite you authoring the national defense strategy, we still don't have a conventional deterrence-by-denial posture with yeah. respect to Taiwan, is it the weak point because you question the willingness of a future president, regardless of party, to escalate to the nuclear level? Or is it a weak point because you question the American people's willingness to, to go to war with all Taiwan? Of, all of the above, yeah. right? So, so, so our, our skin is in the game, whether we like it or not. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I quote uh, Ralph Casas, who was the longtime president of Pacific Forum, uh, a think tank out in Honolulu. And I, Ralph's an amazing guy knows Asian security issues better than anybody. He's talked to more Asian security elites than any human being, I think, alive. And he's pointing like, you know, it's like Taiwan is the canary in the coal mine. People don't talk about it openly. But everybody knows it's an it's a, it's a, it's a indicator of American, of American resolve and capability. So the, the, the problem is, A, the Chinese have a much better claim on Taiwan than they do on anybody else, to your point, right? They've, they've normed the whole international system largely to basically be like, I mean, you and I don't accept that it's necessarily part yeah. of China. We don't know our position, the government position. But most people say, oh, isn't it part of China? Like, that's what it says on the Internet, you know? And then secondly, it's right next to China. So militarily, it's more feasible. And then, you know, the American people. I don't think the American people are more or less willing to fight for Taiwan than they are for, like, Japan or the Philippines. I just think it's harder. Yeah. You know, and the Chinese are probably more resolute. So it's like we need a better military capability to compensate for the lack of, of, of those advantages. Well, one thing that, I mean, if you read like um, uh, Pomfret's book, The Beautiful Country in the Middle Kingdom, one thing that becomes clear is that though, though, though national security folks, I, I think, tend to think of our commitment to Taiwan as incredibly, though it's only two-thirds of, a, of an alliance, sacrosanct, yeah. uh, to use a term that the Biden administration <laughs> recently I don't like used. that term, yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, uh, the, the policy since the 40s has actually been quite uh, ambivalent. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's swung back and forth mm -hmm. in, in varying degrees. Yeah. Um, but, okay, so if, I, if I'm, if I'm going to accept your analysis that we need, the, the thing that we need to organize around is preparing for a fait accompli against Taiwan. Where, where are we in doing that? And what do, what do we need to do? Well, I think, you know, the national defense strategy and efforts, you know, led by, by you and, and, a, and a few others have, have, 
turned us in the right direction and we've made progress. But the problem is the trajectory of the other side. I don't think we're, I don't think we're doing well. You know, and I think the FY22 submission was not very encouraging. Now, it's great what, what you and your colleagues on both sides did on the Armed Services Committee to get more top line and focus on PDI. But, I mean, it's like we're kind of patting ourselves on the back because we now recognize that China's a problem. And it's like, well, I mean, you'd have to be willfully blind at this point not to see that. You know, so the degree of consensus is actually like a counter indicator a little bit. Yeah. And, I mean, it's going to be tough. And they, they, are, they mean business. I mean, they're exercising it. I mean, the head of the Chinese Air Force, or one number two, was just like challenging Frank Kendall to a duel effectively. <laughs> uh, you know, I just saw in the press. So it's, but it's like, you know, these guys are serious, and they've been laser-focused, and they're the largest economy. I mean, for the first time since the 19th century, we are not clearly the largest economy in the world. And we are just, that's a hard thing to get your head around. And... You know, there are, there are except, I mean, I think what the Marines are doing is awesome. I mean, under the Commandant that you've talked about a lot. I think where the Air Force seems to be now is really encouraging. Um, you know, other parts of the services and, and you know, hopefully the, the Joint Staff and, other, and certainly Indo-PACOM. But, I mean, look, I think Admiral Davidson came up in the spring, I think before, I think before you guys. I think it was your question, right, uh, if I recall. And, you know, basically said this could happen within the next six years. I mean, Admiral Davidson is not a bomb thrower. Like, he's not a flamethrower. And he said that, and that's... Yeah, that's what he said in the public. So who knows what the real story is? So Davidson says, uh, Admiral Davidson says they can make a move within the next six years. This is now referred to as the Davidson window. Because Jerry Hendrick stole that term from me. But uh, uh, I love you, Jerry. I know you're watching. Uh, um, the uh, chief of naval operations concurred in open testimony, as did the commandant of the Marine Corps. But there's a debate, right? Mm-hmm. And I think we all have to admit we don't know. Yeah, of course I mean, I think know. there's yeah. a... A theory out there that I tend to think makes sense to at least plan around that post Winter Olympics 22, uh, if they perceive American weakness, they'll they'll test the limits and potentially try something. I think you have some very um, persuasive articles that have been written recently by uh, Oriana Mastro yeah. about the Taiwan yeah. temptation. Um, so, do you think it makes sense to plan? But but here's the problem, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we have a Battle Force 2045 plan for right. the Navy, but Davidson is telling us to think on a 2025 window. Where do you come down on that, and, yeah. and how do we reconcile those two things? Well, I think if this is like heart disease, you know, it's like, yeah, China's a long-term problem, but like heart disease, if you don't solve it in the near term, you're toast, right? <laughs> like, you've got to get through it. Like, obviously, it's a long-term problem, but it's a short one, too. And I think you're absolutely right. And the, the thing that really worries me is that deductively, I think it would make sense for them to really think, think hard about it. You know, that's what scares me. It's like, I don't know what they're thinking in Beijing. I have no idea. I, well, I mean, you know, I can read the newspaper, but, like, I don't pretend to be an expert on how they make decisions in the standing committee. But what really scares me is that I think, you know, if I look at it analytically and I posit a certain goals and I remove implicit constraints on what they're going to be willing to do, like they won't start a war. It's like, we've started wars. Why wouldn't they? You know, I think they might very well do it. So I don't, you know, nobody, anybody who says they are going to do it or they're not going to do it, I think is, is not really very credible because even if they're thinking of doing it right now, they can change their mind or vice versa, right, yeah. depending on, on, on context. So the critical thing is to make sure that they, A, have a, have a, a, a confidence that, they, that there would be a lot of risk and cost, yes, but even better and, and really to be secure that they would very likely fail. And I believe you make the argument, sorry, this is a, just a small point. Yeah. At one point in the book, correct me if I'm wrong, 
that it wouldn't make sense for them just to do take a few yeah. small islands uh, off of Taiwan. Explain explain why that is. Yeah, because I think it's like a variant of the uh, of the Crimea situation, right? So like Kimo and Matsu are a couple, you know, within view of the Chinese mainland, they're Taiwan held, and um, but like okay, let's say they take them. Okay, well they didn't take the big island. Why not? Well, maybe. I guess because they're intimidated, you know, and they're dangerous. You know, they're dangerous. They're willing to use force directly against Taiwanese territory, but they're intimidated from the big thing. Instead, they went after the weakling, you know, and so that would catalyze, probably catalyze Taiwanese resolve and suggest that it would be prudent to, t- to take action. This is why I think the Chinese have never taken those islands over. One of the reasons is because it actually would backfire. That's an interesting point. So to, just quickly to revisit, okay, uh, if we're thinking about things we could actually do in the next five years... So things we could put in place as part of the dial strategy in the next five years, what would be on that list? We, at being, since we're at the Ronald Reagan Institute, we could uh, further uh, stomp on the, the grave of the INF Treaty and <laughs> yeah, do well, INF non-compliant missiles. Yeah. Are, there, are there other sort of obvious? I think you would know much yeah. better than I. I mean, I think, like, you've got to make the blunt, what we call the blunt layer in the National Defense Strategy yeah. of 2018 work, which is basically lethal forces that can be there quickly because the Chinese, what I think they're going to do, and again, just thinking of what's their best strategy, is like they're not going to telegraph the punch, right? Now, if you're going to invade, you're going to cause a lot of heat and light. I mean, you were an intelligence officer. You're going to look for those indicators. So if you're China, you're probably going to try to lull our sensors, which is what the Egyptians did in 1973 to us and the Israelis more immediately. They basically got us to think it was a cry wolf situation. Mm -hmm. And And then you go. Maybe they exercises, things that seem to be normed, and then they go, and then so we need to have ca- capacity and capability that can not only get in there, but but actually kill, you know, uh, tr- transport ships and aircraft, uh, warships that are protecting them with missile, air and missile defense, all the kinds of things. I mean, basically, the key is to degrade, delay, and ultimately deny the invasion by preventing the Chinese from seizing and holding territory. You know, if they get on Taiwanese territory, that's not the end of the world. If those forces can be dislodged, destroyed, or or forced into surrender. But did you leave the Pentagon with a sense that we really understand their capabilities? Because I think there's this big question looming over all of this, which is, can they fight, right? It's one thing to have an order of battle that looks impressive on paper, but unless you've been tested in combat, and I guess there's a few... PLA soldiers that have been tested in hand-to-hand combat against Indian soldiers recently, but uh, we don't know about their ability to do complex joint operations. We know they've made massive investments in the rocket force, and I'm not arguing that we shouldn't take them seriously, but I I just feel like that question is looming in the background. I think so, but I think I'm inclined to err on the side of being cautious, because I think they are conducting large-scale exercises, and as you know, our, our forces have been mostly engaged in the Middle East. I mean, so... You know, my, my favorite example of this is, like, the ultimate movie of the 2010s was, like, a movie about, you know, SEALs in Afghanistan. The ultimate movie in the 1980s when Ronald Reagan, you know, initiated the buildup that led to the help, critically helped lead to the end of the Cold War was Top Gun, which was about a training session. Yeah. And those guys who were supposed to be a Top Gun or Nellis or whatever were finding their edge. A lot of them have been spending time in the sandbox, looping, doing loops over Iraq or Syria or whatever. That's not actually what we need. So... I mean, I, I, I'm not a combat veteran. I'm not a veteran. So, like, I'm not saying from a personal capacity one way or the other. It's others are much better qualified to say. But I just, like, analytically, I look at the scale, the capacity, the seriousness, the focus, and I say, I'm, like, I think I'm going to err on the side of. But that's one of the things where we shouldn't lose hope, though, I think is, is, the, is the critical point, where, look, they, they don't know, and that would be a huge risk. And the one thing I think about for them, to, get, to expand on the point about Kimo and Matsu, is if they go in this big way, 
and they fail, that's going to be really bad for them, right, in a, in a way that's going to strengthen our anti-hegemonic coalition because they're going to be seen to be extremely dangerous and mean but resistible. So I think they need a pretty high level of confidence. If I'm Xi Jinping, I want like a pretty high probability. And, and so we don't have to get to 100%. We just need to get them to the point where they, they're, it's just not, it's not good enough today. Well, your point about Top Gun, I think, ties a lot of your arguments together because they've obviously used economic coercion to censor Top Gun 2 or Top Gun Maverick yeah. by removing the Taiwan flag. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, exactly. So the top, watch Top Gun, watch Red Dawn, and you'll come away with right. And then maybe read Bridges' book <laughs> afterwards, and you'll understand the strategic sure. situation. Um, okay, le- okay, let's say we are successful in denying a fait accompli against Taiwan. At what point you... You in the book you say we not only need to do that we then need to um, follow up with a layer of cost imposition right. uh, after that. W- what do you mean by that and and what role would would sort of economic and financial weapons play in that layer of cost imposition? Yeah. So this is you know, a great question and, and I haven't really been asked about it. And I think it's critical and it actually links back to your early question about my thinking on deterrence. Now it's evolved. I kind of try to bring them together here. Because I'm, and it points that I'm not like deterrence to, by denial liberalis. If I were, I would say we should be able to go after their their strategic forces and disarm them. That would be nice to have, but I just don't think that's possible. I think they will ha- they are going to have a survivable nuclear force, and in fact, even more given their their enormous buildup that's that's now apparently going on. Um, what I think is is a critical concept in, in in my argument is the idea of the burden of escalation. Like in any kind of fight or bargaining interaction. The party's going to benefit when the other side basically is like, I got to do something crazy or aggressive to try to change this vector, you know, to try to change how this is going down. And that, that's, that's Schelling's point about the car. It's much better if you're the parked car, you know, from that point of view, rather than the car that has to ram somebody out of the way, right? And so if you're basically to concretize it, if you're China and your invasion has failed, well, let's say if you're trying to, there's two options, okay? You can succeed in your invasion, and then you say, we're stopped, we're good. And then the Americans have to, like, really escalate the war. And that's going to be really demanding on our national resolve. It's going to be demanding of our allies. Like, are the Europeans going to want to go about that? We're going to want the ones who seem aggressive and kind of crazy. Contrarily, if we block their invasion, they're not going to like it. They're going to hate it. But what are their options going to be? Well, they can go nuclear in a big way, but then that's going to catalyze what's called our flashing sword of vengeance. We're going to be, like, really angry, you know? Uh, or they can go horizontal in economic warfare. But if they initiate that, then, then they're going to be the ones who are going to catalyze this uh, international coalition against them. So it's like the, the side that starts that is going to be in a really a negative position. So that's, but really what I think we want to deny the local battle and then we basically want them to say, you know, because their options are going to be, I can keep going and try again, or I can give up and try again in, in another day. I think what we want them to decide is um, it's better for them because if they keep this fight going and they keep trying to, you know, change things, around, that they're going to suffer. And that's where we can kind of dose cost imposition, where we say, and that, that, that would be, I think, a real decision for statecraft in the mm. sense of like, because in a sense, we could actually sit pr- pretty, you know, if we defeated the invasion, say, you feeling lucky, like, we're ready, and just let them go, and just sit, sit back and, and take what they've got to give and fight them like distant theaters or whatever. But if we wanted to end the war, maybe we think that like the Japanese, there's going to be a change in the Japanese government or the Taiwanese government, people are sick of it. So we have like a time, a date stamp on how long we can go. go. Uh, then I think we say, you know, we start imposing costs selectively, 
Because there we need to be really cautious about the situation spinning truly out of control and playing into their hands by seeming too aggressive. So this is where, this is where I think it's, it's going to be tricky. But I wanted to try to lay out the, the, the kind of strategic logic of it. But you've clearly spent a lot of time thinking through the escalatory ladder, the various strategies available to the different players. I guess my question is who, who at Treasury, who at Commerce is thinking through the financial escalatory ladder? And why is that person not involved in the war games yeah. at DOD, right? Because if, and I, if, if I suspect that a future American president is certainly unwilling to escalate to the nuclear level in a Taiwan scenario, and potentially there are limits on conventional military escalation, that president is certainly going to grab for every financial right. and economic weapon at their disposal. Do you get the sense that we're thinking through those and, and hard power specialists are, are working with the economic and financial types? Not really. I, I, think, I think there's been tremendous work done on the economic sanctions front yeah. and stuff, and I know you've called for this, which is absolutely right. But really looking at it, this is, this is actually like, in a sense, the, the economic and treasury people, I'd love it if they would engage with this book. Yeah. Because they would see, okay, like, here's how I play. Because the reality is economic sanctions aren't going to work as, like, your, as like your, your, your primary victory mechanism. But they can help for, like, war termination or keeping the Chinese in the bounds, which is going to be critical. Right? Like, because, you know, the reality is if we sanction them, they can sanction us back. You get in a cost imposition thing. But if we think about it in an integrated fashion where we fundamentally have the hard power piece right, the, as you wrote about yesterday, and the denial piece right, then I think it can play. And that's where, like, where the Europeans come in, is if the Chinese are the ones who have to expand the war, and if the Europeans come in with meaningful sanctions that say, like, the Middle Easterners, that's a pretty coercive situation for the Chinese if they're thinking about whether they just want to give up for the time being and try again another time hopefully never, or they want to continue this war. So I think that's, that's a critical, but, but what I do worry about, and I worry about from this administration, is, um, is an over-reliance and an over-estimation uh, of the value of these economic sanctions and other things, technological sanctions, and an under-appreciation of military hard power. And that's not because I'm fetishizing hard power, but because like, we're essentially creating a problem right now where there is an anti-hegemonic coalition coming together because of Chinese behavior. The Chinese can see it. They can see their economic sanctions aren't working like on Australia. And if they've gotten a military instrument, oh, great, I can break this thing apart. Who cares about economic sanctions? I'm going to force you to do what I want. But you do make the argument that hard, quote, hard power always has the capacity to dominate soft power. Could you just sort of foot stomp that and, and why you think Yeah, that's I mean, look, I think <laughs> Chairman Mao, you know, he, he knew a thing or two. Power comes out of the barrel of a gun. I mean, it's Hobbes or whatever or Thucydides. Yeah. I mean, look, at the end of the day, the thing that people are most responsive to is it's like a threat to their lives and the lives of their families. And now we just think, oh, that doesn't happen, you know? Like, that doesn't happen, so it, I don't have to think about that. But, I mean, we're in a situation where that very well could happen. And I think, you know, um, you know people are, I mean, look at Cuba. Look at North Korea. They put up with our sanctions for generations at this point. But if you conquer a country and you force them to do what you want, that's a different story. So I agree with that. But we are here at the Reagan Institute. And Reagan uh, not only deserves credit for his military buildup, but he was a committed ideological warrior. Uh, he was, I think, a master at the craft of ideological warfare. His speeches were incredible and in sort of using cultural um, examples to sort of undermine uh, Marxist-Leninism. Um, but in your book, you argue that our comp... And, and it, I believe that 
the modern CCP has gone to school on the failures of the Soviet Union. At one point, I believe Xi Jinping has said, you know, the problem is that they were insufficiently committed to ideology. But you've, you write that our competition with China is not primarily about ideology. Um, but just do you see the benefit of highlighting ideological differences, particularly when it comes to bringing allies to our side and undermining potential, you know, tributary states from joining the uh, CCP's alliance system such as it exists? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think, look, my view on this is, like, we should have a very clear understanding of what this is fundamentally about for us as Americans. Yeah. And then, and then cl- and clearly understand how that's different from, you know, other things that are important or relevant for of competition. I don't think this is a, this, the, the fundamental reason for our beef with China is not ideological. It's that China as a state, as a great power, very large so- uh, society, has... A, a, a rational reason, or reason to aspire to regional dominance, um, which I think actually, I mean, if you look back historically, liberal societies like Great Britain had a, had a protected commercial arrangement. Of course, we've had ours as well. So, um, you know, I think, it's, I, think, I think the threat from China is exacerbated by the fact that they are communism. I mean, I detest communism uh, for multiple reasons. But I think it's important for us to understand what the stakes are and what we are, what we are about. And I also think it's important for us to to be conscious about not overemphasizing the ideological competition for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that I think it can, make, it can make us misunderstand the importance of the stakes. So, I mean, I'm, in this book, and I, you know, I think you'll, you'll hear it, but I sound sometimes like a you know, wannabe whiz kid, you know, the kind of people who got us into Vietnam, candidly. And so I'm very conscious of how we avoid that problem, which is in a sense, in my view, kind of overestimating the stakes of a peripheral conflict. And I think one of the reasons that we did get in that situation was we saw it as a systemic competition where every, every fight, however small or peripheral, was important. And I want to avoid that. I also, I think your point about coalition building is really important, but I think most of the, if you think hard power is what's really important, there's no, society, no state in, in South or Southeast Asia that's a perfect democracy according to Freedom House. Now, I don't know if Freedom House is the most reliable assessor, but this is probably not far off. Yeah. You know? So, like, that's where we, we need help from, like, the Indians and the Vietnamese and the Indonesians and the Malaysians. And, like, it'd be nice to have the Dutch and the Belgians and the Swedes and whatever, but it's not really that important, you know, other than in Europe, uh, which is, a, you know, important secondary theater. But, but I think that's a critical, critical point. That said ideology is important for us. Like, we care. We want our democratic Republican political system to be free. That is a core interest. That our, our security, our prosperity, and our freedom. Secondly, I think ideology is a forum and tool of competition. Now, I want to be careful about how I say this because I don't want to seem disingenuous. But, like, to your point, President Reagan, I think, believed it, and that made him even more formidable in wielding the ideological yeah. instrument. Yeah. But, like, you know, fissuring the Soviet Union... You know, by talking about talking with Solzhenitsyn and yeah. and, and Sakharov and and the oppressed yeah. minorities, the captive nations, yes. But I mean, you can you can look at things my way and agree with all that. I just think it's a little bit untoward for me to <laughs> emphasize yeah. that point. Yeah. You know, but 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 I think those are, those are two different things. And I, I you know, our, our, I think our mutual friend Peter Mattis, Peter, you know, Peter is like, yeah, Bridge, I disagree with you. It is an ideological competition, and we do need regime change. You know, and then and, it'll, and everything will be fine. I had a debate with Aaron Friedberg, I think, last year. And Aaron, I think Aaron, you know, said, yeah, if China became a democracy, we'd have no problems with them, right? And that's the logical. Whereas I think if China became a democracy, we'd still have problems with Interesting. them. Interesting. And so that's, it's, it's a narrower debate, but I think it's a more, more on point one. But the end state you think that we could achieve is behavior change, basically dissuading them yeah, from pursuing a sustainable balance of power without, without necessarily entailing the demise of the Chinese Communist Party. Well, I mean, for their sake, 
I hope yeah. that they don't have to live under an, an evil government, basically. I mean, I think that's yeah. fair to say, right? Um, but that's not a core interest of ours. And I also would point out that our relationship with Russia, which did go through that transformation, is worse now than it was under Gorbachev. So, like, it's not, it, I don't think it's going to solve our problem. Yeah. I'm pretty confident the CCP is not about to produce a Gorbachev anytime soon. Yeah, know? exactly. Um, so I'm not sure how relevant it is anyway. But, but I, guess, I guess what I'm getting at um, inelegantly is... It, maybe, maybe in some way, and maybe this is—it's not fair to draw this comparison. But if, if you go back to Kennan, right, he's saying there explicitly there cannot be a modus vivendi with the Soviet Union such as it exists. Are you arguing that done right, there there could be a modus vivendi with the yeah, CCP? I think there could, be. perhaps not under Xi Jinping, right? Given his particular brand of you know techno totalitarian right. leadership and you know genocidal communist leadership. Uh, but in the future, as long as we have an effective denial strategy. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, look, you know, they, after Mao, you had Deng, who we could live with. And after uh, Khrushchev and his buccaneering, you had Brezhnev, who was not great in other ways, but it was a different, you know, that. So, I, yeah, I think so. I think it's really important for particularly those of us on the conservative side to, to debate that point mm-hmm. and dig into it. Because that's a very useful and healthy debate. And it yeah. strikes me that as much as we have this emerging consensus on China— we haven't spent a lot of time thinking about the end game, exactly. particularly with respect to the party and whether we're after regime change or behavior change. And so, I think that's right. Uh, even though I disagree with you, yeah. I appreciate your willingness to be part of that debate. Let's talk a little bit about sort of uh, you called Europe a, a secondary theater. Where where does Russia figure into your overall strategy of denial? What if I were to say, well, Bridge, I read this thinking you're putting all your eggs in the basket of defending against a fait accompli with China. What if Something pops off with Russia. What if, uh, you know, a, a nuclear ambitious or armed Iran, you know, stirs up a massive conflict in the Middle East? We've had a few recent presidents who've thought they could pivot out of the Middle East, and, and you know, reality has disabused them of that notion. We respond to those. Yeah, criticisms. well, I think, look, I look at it in a, in a deductive way. Asia is the most important theater. It's 50% of global GDP, roughly, or, or probably more over time. And China is by far the most plausible hegemon in one of the world's key theaters. So the theaters that actually matter are uh, Asia, 50%, Europe, which is like 25% of GDP, and North America, which is like a little up at 20, but it's basically the United States, and then more narrowly the Persian Gulf because of hydrocarbons. The rest of the world, their fate is going to be determined in those theaters because that's where the power is. It's not a moral comment, it's just a reality. But Asia is the most important. Europe is second. Okay, that, that's one thing. Then there's no state in Europe that is anywhere nearly as relatively powerful as China is in Asia, right? So the prospects of achieving regional hegemony by Russia are much stronger. It's not even the strongest state in Europe. I think Germany is by most conventional measures, certainly the wealthiest state. I mean, Russia's not like third or fourth wealthiest state. Or, it depends on how you measure it. But, but I mean, it's, it's a, so that means we have to prioritize. So if we're, if, if we're forced to choose, we absolutely need to choose Asia. That wasn't true 100 years ago when Europe was the decisive theater. But, you know, times change. Economic wealth is moving back to Asia. So there we go. That doesn't mean I'm not worried about Russia and Europe. I am worried about it. I want us to sustain NATO. And I do think a deterrence by denial is also the best strategy for us to preserve that anti-hegemonic coalition. The problem is we can't resource it, you know? So, like, what we have to do is get the Europeans to do it. And the question is how. Um, You know, a couple things. I think, A, we're doing better than people often appreciate. Most of the medium-sized states in North and and, and Eastern Europe are actually spending. You know, the Brits just came in uh, big, a lot of your friends. Uh, uh, and, and some of mine too, the, the, uh, the Poles spend a lot, uh, the Swedes, the Finns, the Norwegians, the Danes are all doing well. Who's the problem? Germany. 
But the problem is they're, they're the framework nation, so we need to get the Germans to step up. It's their moral responsibility, it's strategically in their interests, and we should be clear about it. Frankly, I think we've tried every strategy to go after them. None of them seems to be working. I definitely don't think what the current administration is pursuing is smart because it's essentially like over-reassuring them when they need pressure. Now, sometimes I think in the past we were too hard on them and we kind of let them off the hook by making us seem like the bad guys, you know? But they really need to step up. That is, if, I mean, the more, most moralistic-toned foreign policy rhetoric in the world should be matched with a commensurate commitment to collective defense in NATO. So, I mean, we have a... We have a uh, an alternative. But as I say in the book, if we're forced to choose, we have to choose Asia because it's more important. We'll, we'll, we'll be able to deal with it if, we, if Europe is a big problem. And then where, just how, how do you view the recent events in Afghanistan? I believe you had been an advocate for getting mm-hmm. out of Afghanistan. Yeah. I think the concern I have is that particularly the inept way in which the surrender was conducted will damage our credibility in other regions of the world and sort of ironically in tragedy Tragically, the Biden foreign policy could suffer the same fate of, of Obama's, which is to say a well-intentioned pivot to Asia never happens because you misunderstand the basic alliance structure in a tertiary priority theater, if that makes yeah. sense. Well, I think, you know, as, as my, my partner and good friend Wes Mitchell puts it, uh, you know, the, the nature of the dismount is critical. I do think we should, get a, should have gotten out of Afghanistan. I still do. Uh, because um, we need to be geopolitically prioritized, but also, I mean, the huge military tail associated with that, uh, with Afghanistan, but of course with Iraq and Syria too. And I mean, I think it seems pretty pretty clear, and you would know better than I. But you know, we, we were not a steady state. It, it, if if we had gone away from the agreement, there would have been an escalation in in, in violence. So you know, it, it's it's not a it's not again it's not a cut and dry like hundred percent zero percent issue. I think there are reasonable views on both sides. My view is we we are going to need to do really serious changes in Afghanistan. In Europe, we're going to have to draw down forces because we're behind in the primary theater in the most significant scenario. So we, we have to be looking at things like we're almost at a heart attack. So if you're like, it's not like, ah, oh, you can have a burger or whatever. Like, no, no, no. Just like do only that one thing. I think, the, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I mean, I think your, your questioning yesterday was a model of what, of what the American people uh, need and deserve in terms of accountability, including from our senior military who really need to, to have accountability at, at their feet as well uh, for this. Um, but it was, you know, it was a thoroughly botched uh, withdrawal. Now, I, I've always bridled at accusations of incompetence because I think they're usually used to, to excuse the own person's association. So like you remember back in the Iraq days, people would say, I support the war, but the, the, the occupation was totally incompetent because it's like, it's like as if like overthrowing yeah. Saddam is not going to create a chaotic That's situation, right. right? That's a cop-out. This is a military withdrawal. It's a logistical operation. I mean, as you pointed out, yeah. it's like getting our people out and the, and the civilians and SIVs and allies that we want to get out and then, like, maybe assume the worst. Maybe don't plan to go on vacation in August. You know what I mean? Like, maybe that's a tell that you weren't really accurately assessing. We deserve better for 3.5% of our GDP, right? I mean, I don't need to tell you this. But I think the, the reverberations are not so much on our fo- regional focus, but exactly as you put it, as our competence. Is like, these guys, you know, can these guys, like, tie their shoes? Are these guys going to tell us? Like, look, you know, and then the AUKUS thing, which, again, I think AUKUS was a great thing. But, like... And I don't know. I mean, I don't know all the details. Obviously, I'm not read into the details of the diplomacy. But it's this nature of the dismount thing. This, in a way, actually, I think a lot of the most creative diplomacy and strategy is actually going to have to go to these secondary theaters. Because in the primary theater, it's almost like geometric. Like, it doesn't matter whether we're nice to the Vietnamese or the Indians or the Japanese that much, like, on the margin. Because they have to work with us, you know? Like, yeah. what's their alternative? But in Europe and, and the Middle East, there's a lot more vacuum. So I think outcomes are much more uh, undetermined. 
Uh, so I think we have three minutes. I got to none of the questions that people submitted, but oh, you know, whatever. I'm the host, so <laughs> yeah, I can do what right. I want. Because um, <laughs> I have one more question I want to ask. Okay. Okay. So presumably we're going to get a national security strategy soon from the Biden administration, and then we'll get a national defense strategy. I've given up hope that Secretary Austin is just going to say, you know what, Bridge got it right in 2018. Copy paste. We just didn't implement it. Let's go. Exactly. We're hearing. You don't even po- have to mention me. Just yeah. Like, you know, yeah. Mattis. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. Give it to credit to whoever. <laughs> uh, um, He's talked about this new concept called integrated deterrence. There's concern coming, particularly from Sea Power advocates, about next year's budget, uh, anticipating a bloodbath, particularly for for the Navy. Um, I'd be curious, kind of, what concerns do you have as uh, with the forthcoming national defense strategy? What does it imply for your work? I, I, I don't know what's going on. I haven't. I haven't. I don't have a great sense, but I, I really don't like this integrated deterrence idea. It's taking your eye off the ball. It's like you said. It's like focus on hard power and denial. And anything that's not about that is a distraction. And it, it suggests to people that other peripheral activities, military or not, are relevant when they're really not. To like the, the, the basic disposition. I mean, my sense is like I, you know, in a strategy, I'm kind of in the Dean Ashton school of like mass mind of government, like hit them hard. I think it was Atchison, might have been. That's it. Well, I was like, going to say, because I represent McCarthy's district, so I would have to say the Atchison <laughs> School of Cowardly, cowardly Comedy. Comedy. Yeah, yeah. That's right. He's well. buried in my district. Yes. <laughs> we don't say Dean Atchison School. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, okay, fair, fair, fair. Yeah. Uh, it's two Republicans. We shouldn't do that. Yeah. But yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty worried because, like, I, they seem to exhibit a sanguinity about the near term. I have a, a sort of maybe it's a, a simplistic concern that, and I get that different parties win elections and do different things, sure. but. The Navy just announced that it's doing another force structure assessment. We've had like 20 force structure <laughs> assessments since I've been in Congress. We keep just studying this problem, problem to Ford death. Ford Posture is a great example. There's been yeah. many Ford Posture studies over the last 10 years, and we've done almost nothing. Yeah, yeah. So I, at some point, we just have to agree and execute at least a 70% Yeah, do an solution. 80-20 thing. You know, yeah. just like, I don't know, make some stuff more survivable in the Western Pacific. That would be a start. <laughs> That would have been a better, you know, your next book will be make some stuff more survivable. But hence my, but hence my urgency about like sure. pulling stock chocks on the other stuff because we don't think we have any slack. Do I, uh, maybe we can do one more. I'll get to one audience question here very quickly, assuming I don't have to run across and vote. Uh, okay, so this comes from, because I, I think this is an interesting split within the Biden administration that is worth talking about. This comes from Professor Mark Bucknam at the Naval War College who asks, what are the risks to a coherent U.S. national security strategy from an overemphasis of the supposed threat from climate change? The Biden administration's interim national security strategy guidance mentions climate change 26 times, including five mentions of a supposed climate crisis. What does this emphasis on the climate as a security threat do to America's ability to succeed in the current era of great power competition? Well, look, I'm a, I'm a conservative. I'm not a specialist on on, on climate, I mean, I think this book hopefully should be, uh, I think it is actually of interest to, to no matter what your politics are within, within reason, but I have my own views on, on climate. But what I'd say on climate, and actually I discussed it a little bit in the book, is whatever those problems are, are additive on top of these, logically, these requirements. I'm not trying to pile it on, but it's not like the fact that there's a climate crisis distracts from, you know, China's incentives to use force and how we're regionally, you know, pr- racking and stacking. I mean, you know, for instance, people say, oh, in the context of a pandemic, we can't, sur-. and it's like, well, if you look historically, there's been enormous military uh, uh, movement during, during the pandemics and their, and, their, and their wake. So, like, if you want to work on climate, I mean, I might disagree with you on other grounds, but from this perspective, like, it doesn't really affect. And I think to, to, to the professor's question, 
injecting it in the defense conversation is really worries me that it is distracting because it likes it, it you know i mean there's only there's a finite amount of human attention at some point you want to go to bed or have a beer or whatever right and it's like if you're thinking about climate you know a third of the day instead of like i mean the, the line i use it's a bit like you know brash but it's like if you're in the military and you're not working on defeating a chinese invasion of taiwan sustaining a nuclear deterrent both for russia and china or a low-cost counterterrorism operation you should look for a new job yeah. So if your like thing is, you know, I'm the climate czar in the Pentagon, I don't know, work in another part of the government. Yeah, and I, I bring this up just because I don't think, I'm not trying to deny that the climate uh, is, is a problem we have to deal with. But within the administration, I sense that there's at least two camps. And one, perhaps led by Secretary Kerry, a former secretary working out of Foggy Bottom in George Marshall's old office, sort of making the case that climate change is the overarching issue. Right. And then another camp saying, well, maybe not, and has a more realistic view of the Chinese Communist Party. I'm not sure how those, those – that's a contradiction that needs to be resolved at some point. Um, and I'm just not sure if it's going to be resolved in the near term, yeah. which I guess is the purpose of strategy, to get back to your book. It's yeah. to, to get everyone on, on the same page in terms of making Or at least arguing in the same context, in yeah. framework. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Bridge Colby, uh, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for uh, taking an enormous amount of time to write this book. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Strategy of denial, American defense in an age of great power conflict. I actually didn't check to see if I was thanked in the book. I should have been. If not, I don't think I was cited. But oh, despite you definitely that, were cited. You definitely okay. were cited. Because no, 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 no. <laughs> I always check. Spikeman was cited early on. Yeah. Well, so I this mean, is, I, it's I, a great I, book. It's I mean, it's the same breath. Yeah. Uh, uh, but sincerely, thank you for being willing to engage Roger in constant debate as well. <laughs> and thank you to the Reagan Institute for everything you're doing. Uh, there's really no organization like this.